Welcome to Yeah About the Podcast. I'm Vivian Gabor, and I'm so excited because I'm getting to sit down with a good friend of mine. Um, you, If you don't know him, you should know him. He's an incredible writer, um, does all sorts of stuff. I'll let him tell you about all of that, though. It's Alan Jude Ryland. Yay, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. Um uh- it's so nice. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, it's so nice to be back here after our last session <laughs> vanished into the ether. It did. So we actually recorded last year. We recorded an episode that was like, what, two and a half, three hours long? It was fun. We had so much fun. We had so much fun and it was great. And I was. it was going to be two episodes of the podcast. It was going to be amazing. And then it just disappeared off my computer i've i've literally searched um high and low (laughs) i've I've searched everywhere so my my laptop is actually dead but i've been like i like searched through it multiple times before it died um and then my um external i've gone through every single file folder on my external hard drive it's like 500 gigabytes and it's not there and it's not on the sd card who knows where it went? Apparently, we just were not supposed to post that episode. So here we are again, and I'm so excited to finally yeah. get to yeah. have a do-over. Yeah, it was just really funny because it was a blast, and we were both, like, so into the conversation, <laughs> making all these points. And, like, at certain points, we were joking, and we were like, oh, we're so brilliant and eloquent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like... Then, like, you know, fast forward, like, a day or so later, I was like, hey, girl, where's, like, the fucking podcast? Like, what's going on? And you're like, because you had, I forget what it was. I mean, I know that it takes you a bit to upload it, but, like, yeah, I was yeah. like, oh, you had I was going to give you, yeah, I was going to give you prior review because there were a couple of things that we talked about yes. that had to do with court cases that you weren't yes. sure if we should talk about. So. Exactly, which, which we will not talk about. We will not. We will not. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just leave that as a teaser for everyone listening and be like, but but wait, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's a story. It's actually a really fun and lively story. It's a great story, but none of you will ever get to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, just, uh, but in any case, yeah, but like, uh, yeah, you had promised me prior review and you're like, yeah, let me get it to you in like a day or so. I want to like listen to it. And whatever. <laughs> great. And I was like, hey, girl, where is it? And you're like, I, I don't, don't know. know. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was hilarious. And I was like, wait, what the fuck does that mean? And then you're like, I literally don't know. It like vanished. It's gone. It's like, it doesn't exist. And I was like. It just, it went away. Yeah. So I was like, okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been searching, honestly, since that recording for it. And I, I don't know. I yeah. don't well, I don't remember, it, but I'm glad you're here. <laughs> yes, likewise. I have so 
for whoever's listening, I haven't seen Darling Vivian since before he moved to London temporarily. He <laughs> came to temporarily. He, uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be temporary, but it was because the pandemic hates everyone. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So um, it was just, it's like a, it's a chapter we can all just, smile about now <laughs> it was a beautiful chapter that is now closed <laughs> yes. so he was going to london and he was like oh i'm gonna leave new york and i was like oh i'm so sad and i was like so excited for him so then i invited him to my place and i cooked and it was so it was- good and we watched the haunting which is possibly one of the greatest movies ever yes oh my god it was so thrilling and the entire time we were just like yo, Eleanor's a crazy bitch. <laughs> we were just, like, <laughs> losing our minds, yeah. And um, if you, if any of you out there haven't seen The Haunting, but you have seen Netflix's new miniseries, The Haunting of Hill House, um, first off, go read the book, The Haunting of Hill House, because yeah. it's a completely different and honestly, sorry, Netflix, better story. <laughs> and then the movie... Sorry, <laughs> and then the movie is honestly almost verbatim. Like, I don't think they changed a single line from the book. It's a very short book. So yeah. it's easy to just kind of take it straight from the pages. Yeah, they gave us a really, like, taut, thrilling, you mm-hmm. know, two hours. And it was made in, what, the early 60s? 63. Yeah. yeah, 1963. And it has a very strong, pretty much overt lesbian storyline in it, too, oh, which yeah. is... That's, beautiful that's the other thing too the entire time we're watching it because we both know the story we were like oh look theo theo wants her get it theo get it <laughs> and we like kept on and we paused multiple times to go like eat more chili oh yeah <laughs> so, so if you don't get anything else from this podcast if you stop listening now at least you got go listen to the haunted or go watch the haunting because it's yeah. so good it's easy to find too it's not a difficult movie to find oh yeah it's it's everywhere and it's directed by of all people robert wise who is one of the most versatile um filmmakers ever this is the guy he directed the haunting he directed west side story he directed mm-hmm. sound of music he directed the day the earth stood still and if like, i remember correctly wait i probably don't remember correctly let me look this up before i make an ass out of myself okay um i if i i believe nope never mind <laughs> Never mind. I was nope. We're not going to bring it up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought I thought the director of the haunting was some relation to um, the the director of of Clue, but that's something completely different. That's a different horror franchise. That's connected. oh, okay, got it, got it. Um, Just yeah. mixing up all of my franchises. Yeah. So yeah. So so I saw Darling Vivian then that night for the haunting, and before what that was that. That was in. Right. That was February. No, was that February? That was February. End of February. Oh, my God. Yeah. You left the following week. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So we saw each other then. He, We had had to put off the haunting for at least a couple of weeks because you were catching up on all these commissions and shit. Mm-hmm. And you were like, I'm sorry. I'm not. I don't mean to be a bad person. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, I get it. You're leaving. And it's fine. Um you know, but it all worked out. And then before that, we saw each other in London for a super fun new year. Oh, it was so much fun. I was so mad that I had to leave before because you all went out. 
Like we you went it. to the clubs and you got like smashed out at the clubs. We so did. And <laughs> I had to leave because my flight home was literally the next morning. Because that's the cheapest day to fly is on New Year's Day. So I like set my <laughs> set my flight that for the next morning. To be fair, I thought I had set it for like four or five p.m. And then I looked and I was like, oh, I got the nine a.m. flight. Fuck. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. If it had been later, it would have been fine. You could have come out with us for a bit. It yeah, been- but it was still good. We got to. I got to have New Year's. Um, like, have. I, my brain doesn't work anymore. It hit midnight while I was like looking at the London Eye, and I got to watch the the um, fireworks over the Thames. So it was all it all ended up well. But nice, yeah. I was sad to, that I missed all the clubbing. We got to eat and chill and drink in a mansion in Mayfair. Oh my god, the <laughs> most beautiful place with possibly a blood-stained glove from the Titanic in the corner. <laughs> yeah. Like this, these people were that rich. They have like t- Titanic artifacts in their most random house. things in this house, but it was I beautiful. Know. I know if you remember, like Laura, it was above. It Laura. was it. It was above the Bowman store, right? Yeah, 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 God. yeah. And like Laura and Karen were like arguing about it the whole time. They were like. <laughs> Wait, is this from the Titanic? Oh my God, it is. <laughs> I was just sitting there like, I sure hope it's from the Titanic. I don't know why it would be bloodstained, but sure, I mean, let's say it is. Considering, considering just the opulent wealth on display in that fucking mansion. Absolutely. I have no doubt that was a real life Titanic artifact. Right? And it wasn't even like a, a well laid out apartment. It was just like, we have tons of really expensive things and this is like our third apartment. So we're just yeah. going to store everything here. Yeah, like nothing matched. <laughs> it was still gorgeous. It was all beautiful and it was all like expensive and rich, but it like nothing. It was very eclectic. It was very yeah. strange. Yeah, it was. Yeah, like the entire time we just kept on commenting on the shitty interior design we're like i wouldn't put that there or like what is up with the armoire we had this armoire that like (laughs) had the door was like totally in the wrong place it could have hit another thing it was just like really funny so we just mention like that but Uh, i'm i i i just want to like introduce you fully to the audience because they're probably like who the fuck is this and what the fuck are they talking about at this point um tell us a little bit so you're a journalist you've done a lot of really cool work um ah yeah worked with some really cool people yes um so uh i got my big break uh years ago when i met uh star trek actor george takei and his people just name dropping there (laughs) i know just like oh that guy (laughs) you know only like the biggest lgbtq advocate in the country so you know seriously (laughs) yeah but like i ended up at the I ended up at a party, like, at the right time. I was admittedly, I was admittedly fucking this guy on a regular basis. And he was like, <laughs> no, it was just like, you know, and it was just life. It was like, whatever. And I had been going through some really dark shit in my life at the time, which I will not burden this podcast with. Um, but because I literally got off of a counseling session, like, just before this. <laughs> it was like, and we're in the middle of a pandemic, so as, as you can imagine, lots of... It's pand- okay. This podcast is absolutely my therapy, so... Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, what ended up happening was, um, no, so, like, you know, I was going through some dark shit, and then I reconnected with this guy, 
And we were, you know, fucking around and doing our thing. And he was like, oh, do you want to come with me to this party? It'll be really great. I was like, oh, cool. And I go, and it's George Takei and his people. And I was like, you didn't <laughs> tell me this. Like, how the fuck did I end up here? It was the weirdest thing. And they're like, oh, we really like you. And the next thing you know, I was like giving writing samples. And the next thing you know, I had a fucking job. And then I was working as George Takei's fucking editor. And it was the weirdest shit. <laughs> um, it's a total New York story. Oh, yeah. The, uh, that happened to me, a born and bred New Yorker. Yes, we exist. We Come on, exist. born and bred New Yorker. Yeah. Are you, on, are you born and bred? bred? Emphasis on bread. Are and, you <laughs> born yeah. and bred Staten Island? Or remind me where, because you're in uh, Staten Island now. Yeah. Like the only yeah. reason I've ever been to Staten Island. Yes, because I'm, <laughs> I'm amazing, clearly. Um, but uh, no, I'm, so I was uh, born in Queens. Raised in Queens. Come on, Queens. That's yes. where I am right now. Yes, Astoria, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I went to school in Astoria. So um It's where all the pretty Greek boys are. Yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> I have experience with those. <laughs> so anyway, um no, so I was born and raised in Queens and uh born in Jamaica Hospital, lived in Jamaica, Queens for the first like 10, 11 years of my life. When I moved to Woodhaven after that, went to school in Astoria. Um, and ended up going to college in uh, Tribeca and in the financial district. Come on, and Tribeca. Yes. Um, so I've always had, you know, very uh, rich and highfalutin taste. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. Yes. Hence why we ended up in a mansion in fucking Mayfair. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I went to college there and everything. And no, I just, like I said, I had some really dark shit in my life. And I was just taking care of my grandmother, who um, died recently during the pandemic, bless her soul. And, um, you know, she had dementia for a, long, a very long time. And my life was just all over the place for a very mm-hmm. long time. And uh, no, I just, out of the blue, reconnected with that guy. And if that hadn't happened, I would never have ended up at that party that night. Yeah. And, you know, I ended up there. Um, so I was working, you know, for George Takei. I was breaking lots of news. We were covering LGBTQ issues. I did a lot of work um, just through the 2015 and 2016 election cycle. It was magnificent. And I ended up uh, meeting another, I ended up meeting a journalist, an editor um, who worked, uh, you know, who was based out of the United Nations and worked with the foreign press, uh, who became very friendly with me and he gave me some opportunities. And one day he was like, hey, Alan, have you ever considered like editing for like the UN or like the foreign press? And I was, <laughs> like, I was like, no, because like I had, had, I had admittedly, I had dropped out of college. I had worked this job. I admittedly had no self-esteem whatsoever. I was just trying to do my work and taking care of my grandmother and my life just was very insular for a while. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, I don't even know how I would even get started. And he goes, oh, well, let me figure something out. And the next thing you know, I was editing for them. And uh, I ended up joining the foreign press as a credential journalist. And these days I am the general secretary of the Association of Foreign Correspondents in the United States. Um, we advocate for, you know, press freedom, and we work really hard to give foreign journalists the resources that they need to do their jobs properly. Last year, for example, in uh, November, just before we filmed the podcast that wasn't, um, (laughs) (laughs) we uh, held a scholarship ceremony where we gifted um, $30,000 to foreign journalists so they could continue their their studies here. It was really cool, and I loved it. It was just really magical and really great. Um, yeah, and so- especially right now, journalism is such an important thing 
with the attacks that it's coming under from current administration and um, honestly, other countries too. It's it's an important way of making sure that information is getting out there and making sure that it remains unbiased. And it's it's a difficult thing to be in right now. Yeah, you're one hundred percent correct. Um, it's been hellish at times. I'll just be perfectly frank. It hasn't been fun. Um, you know, it's very important work, but it's just very emotionally taxing. I bet. I bet I also would assume there's probably a certain amount of vindication, at least for you right now, because um, you were rather infamous during 2015, 2016, the whole election cycle for um, not necessarily coming after Trump, but like laying some truths bare, shall we say. Um, <laughs> I remember following a lot of that drama because I've been following you for a while, especially on Twitter and just following yeah. people being like basically attacking you for just being like, I'm just telling you the truth about know, Trump. Yeah, like, yeah. like, why are was, you coming after me? There was some reporting, like, for example, um, just like the Stormy Daniels, mm-hmm. Sakana, um, in addition to like <clears throat> a lot of the, uh, the Trump brothers, Eric and, and Donald Jr. There, um, Oh, uh, you know, stealing charity money and lots of things like that. Um, so I was doing a lot of reporting and coverage and editing of that. And this stuff, you know, makes its way around. And then there was a day when Donald Trump Jr. attacked me and my publication on Twitter. So beautiful. So <laughs> was, beautiful. Yes. And that was like my crowning, my crowning achievement. And I was like, oh, this is great. I'm so moist. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> And it was it was pretty cool. There was a period of notoriety, and I was writing like crazy and being invited to contribute and to edit for other publications, um, including the Huffington Post and some others. And uh, you know, it was really cool. But it's funny because my career has actually shifted into just a, it's, I'm in a different sort of I'm on a different sort of plane now. Mm. So. Um, so because of the coronavirus pandemic, as you can imagine, opportunities in my field, as in most fields, have really just fallen into just about nothing. It's crazy. Um, I was already making very little money. I've been a freelancer for the last couple of years. I still do some work for uh, George Takei on the side, and they're still very lovely to me, and I'm very grateful for Mm -hmm. that. A good uh, working relationship. Um, But... It's just, you know, it's been hard. And it was a conscious choice I made and I've enjoyed a lot of my freedom. I have not enjoyed, you know, not having health insurance. (laughs) You know, thanks America. Um, Yeah, no kidding. And being, you know, pretty broke. So I have less of a social life than I used to, but I've been able to do really cool and important things. Um, I will say that, uh, essentially my point here is that because of the pandemic, I of course have had to just, I've been doing this for a while, but I've been rethinking a lot about what I want. Mm. and where I want to go and unfortunately journalism has just been so hard and there just there isn't support for it right now yeah Um, I decided to go back to school and yay yay and I'm finishing my degree I start next month I'm finishing my political science degree that's so Um, cool yeah good for you yes I'm really excited I'm doing that um and and I'm going to have a concentration in public policy um that's awesome Yes. Additionally, as I'm someone who, um, I speak two languages, I'm fluent in Spanish. I spoke it growing up in my household. I come from a Hispanic household. 
and um, I decided to uh, pursue another major with a concentration in translation and, and interpretation um, because it'll give me an opportunity to work, you know, to just uh, work in different fields, including like, you know, interpreting for refugees and immigrants and also um, uh, medical billing and trans and uh, health services, anything like that. Like there's, yeah. there's a whole wealth of areas that need interpreters. And just because you speak a language and I speak it, I write it, um, you know, everything else. Um, just because you can speak a language doesn't necessarily mean that you're qualified to interpret it. Yeah, know? it's a very different thing. It's a very different thing, especially when you're dealing with, you know, just different nations, different slang, different dialects, all sorts of yep. different things. Um, so I really want to um, just round myself out, you know, use mm -hmm. my accordingly. I would love to perhaps down the line pursue an MA, perhaps in, in translation and interpretation. Nice. As, uh, yeah, as well as uh, perhaps another one in international relations or something, you know, something of that nature. Yeah. Yeah, I also have been studying, you know, another language. I've been, I've been learning German and uh, improving. Such my... a fun language. I love German. Yeah, yeah it's a that was my language. that was the language I took in college. Okay. I took I took five years, six years of Spanish back in middle school and high school. Do I remember most of it? No. <laughs> like, it, like if I can understand it, if I'm reading it, I'm at that point where like, I can read it for the most part. And if someone speaks slowly to me, I can figure out what they're saying, but yeah. there's no way in which I could respond just because I haven't practiced it at all. I'm way yeah. out of practice. Same with German. Like I can understand if someone speaks to me and I can generally read it fairly well, but I can't respond at all because the vocabulary is completely out the window. But yeah, no, <laughs> no it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's really funny because, um, I was having a conversation with a friend earlier um, on Zoom. It just, you know, she was asking me how we were doing. We we needed to catch up. I hadn't seen her since even even before the last time I saw you. You mm -hmm. know, a lot of it is just because the pandemic uprooted us. She ended up she lives here with um, with her partner, but the both of them ended up having to like they ended up stuck in the UK because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and they're both, you know, you, they're both UK citizens, but like, it's just, it's been super problematic. They had to like leave their apartment behind for the time being. They're lucky that like they make, you know, really good money. So they were able yeah. to pay their rent ahead and they're fine, but it was just uh, crazy. But I was telling her about this. And I was just saying that like, well, like one of the reasons why I want to really round out, you know, my language learning and, and obviously pursue another language is because growing up, I realized that I had to be the communicator, you know, mm. that was my goal. Like I was, you know, my mother, my mother is an immigrant. She came here when she was 18 years old and then she never had a formal education after that. She never had a formal education after, yeah. after the age of 18. And how could she, she didn't have time. She had to work. She had to get by, she had to do her thing like so many other immigrants. And yeah. she, yeah. And she passed on a lot of those goals and dreams and aspirations, what she will down to me. And um, I know that I've had it very good in comparison to a lot of people I know and other people just around the country. And I know that I've had it very good compared to a lot of my relatives. I also know that I've been able to pass for, for white, you know, mm. pretty much my entire life. My mother, for example, is very fair skinned and blonde. Um, and I, uh, I have a Colombian father who himself was fairly light skinned. And I've just been able to just pass for much of my life. And it's really funny. I had this conversation with a friend of mine about how like, as a communicator, you know, in the Hispanosphere, so many 
um, so many people just, they feel very, very sensitive about their ability to speak, to speak English, especially mm -hmm. because the way our country treats people who don't speak English, is yeah. we treat them terribly. Which and is stupid because English is honestly one of the most difficult languages out there. So like have a little grace. <laughs> yeah, if you're, yeah. Like if you're able to learn English and you, you know, and it's not your first language, like good on you because it's yeah. so complicated. Yeah. Um, and it has, uh, and there's that, and English actually has like a much wider vocabulary than, you know, mm -hmm. because it, leeches off of so many other languages. Oh yeah. We're yeah. a compilation of like five or six other languages. And if things don't match up, we just keep both of them instead exactly, of choosing yeah. one or the other. Yeah. I before E except after C, except yeah. all of these other examples. Exactly. <laughs> oh, God. Was, oh God. Shit like that. <laughs> but um, yeah. So the thing is, uh, you know, it is a thing. Like my family members, my mother in particular, is very sensitive about her ability to speak English, which is crazy because she's been here 40 years. And as you can imagine, speaks <sighs> excellent English. Yeah. But her lack of a formal education has, you know, contributed to a certain anxiety about her ability to speak English, let alone write it or communicate it. She's not the best writer. Growing up, I had to be her editor. I was her translator. I was her interpreter. I did the same thing for my grandmother when she was mm. alive. My grandmother hardly spoke a word of English. And, like, I did everything from, like, taking care of, like, making phone calls to, like, handling doctor's appointments to getting a relative out of the occasional traffic ticket, you know, when my uncle, you know, and this is like, I'm saying like, as a kid, yeah, I, yeah. I didn't have the ability to like really grow up and be a kid in much the same way that a lot of other yeah. people. Yeah. That happens in a lot of, in a lot of immigrant families. I mean, I, I like to, cons it's not that I like to consider myself. I, there's, it's confusing because my grandma was the first one born in the U S but she also has siblings that were born back in Russia. So, she, yeah. I'm like second generation, kind of like two and yeah. a half generation. Yeah. But there was a lot of that going on with my mom or my Nana and her mom um, that I heard stories about. And then also like I took sign language in college. And one of the things that we learned about, about deaf culture is a lot of um, deaf parents will use children their children who can hear as their interpreters and it just forces those kids to grow up so so very fast because they're having to have um adult conversations that honestly most kids wouldn't understand or wouldn't shouldn't necessarily have to understand until much later in their lives yes and that was a thing that was what it was like growing up and it was very stressful um at times i resented it for a very long time mm -hmm. now that i'm older i understand why it was, why uh, that um, role was passed down to me and why it was so incumbent, you know, that I'd be the communicator. And the thing is, I'm fortunate that I've always been a writer and a reader and a communicator. I've had a talent for that since I was a child. Um, and the thing is, other parents, they see that and they foster it. You know, yeah. people, like, oh, this is an opportunity and my child can learn and grow and with that. Of course, <laughs> my mother saw that, don't get me wrong, but like, she didn't, foster me out of the goodness of her heart. She fostered those abilities out of necessity because yeah, it was completely. Yeah. And that's what happens when you're an immigrant. It makes, you know, it's just to make your life a little easier. Unfortunately, it meant that I had to grow up and I, you know, I had a very hard time. I didn't like how there's also that weird bridge 
especially just growing up and even here like in the united states like for example how like when you're 18 you can go like fight in a war and die but you can't fucking drink so it's like it's, it's weird but, like, the weirdest thing yeah, ever it is but like in a, imagine <laughs> growing up in an immigrant household and it's like oh i have to help <laughs> today i have to have my, help my uncle navigate the social security administration but God, but i, can't I still can't figure can't. that shit out yeah, so it's like, <laughs> I have to help my uncle navigate the Social Security Administration. Oh, but I can't stay up past 10. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> it made no sense. But that was my life. And it made me very angry because it was like, yeah. you know, it's like, you want to treat me like an adult, then treat me like an adult all the way around. Like, don't give me this half-assed bullshit. It made me yeah. very angry. I hated the, the lack of consistency. Um, but this also related and pertains to the fact that, like, I've been white-passing for so much of my life. Mm. Um, the thing is that like, I have some relatives who are considerably darker, right? And when they speak our language, when they speak Spanish, and some of them only speak Spanish, so like I've grown up just only speaking Spanish with mm-hmm. some of these people. Um, when they speak our language, people, people look at them and say, hey, go back to your country. When I speak our language, people look at me and say, oh, where did you learn it? And they ask me where I've studied abroad. You know, and it's like, you know, <laughs> realize how fucked up that is, you know? Yeah. And, and, it, and it fucks with your head. It certainly fucked with my head for the longest time. And that was a big reason why my mother emphasized reading and all this other stuff for me, because it's like, if I was articulate, if I was well-read, if I knew what was going on, I could serve as a barrier, as a line of defense mm-hmm. for my family, for people who typically do not have... Um, you know, they have no recourse otherwise. Yeah. Um, but it's, it is very difficult to take a child and to place them in that role. Um, Completely. Yeah. So I, you know, I dealt with that. And then I ended up, you know, be, becoming a journalist. I always told myself, I want to be a writer. I want to do something in that capacity. Certainly down the line, I want to continue my work in editing and in communications, especially, you know, using my translating skills accordingly. Yeah. I want to be able to do all of that. And, you know, perhaps uh, no definitely not perhaps but like definitely master another language yeah uh, get good at that it's um i'm very fortunate that i'm able to speak two languages and that my brain is already elastic enough to make sense of another language i mean they they always say when you're a when you're a young kid it's easier first off it's easier to pick up other languages because you have more brain cells at that point in your life People don't realize that your brain cells start dying the moment you're born. That's like, literally, they start dying. So we have fewer brain cells than we did when we were born. So it makes sense to try to shove all that learning as early as possible. I've had voice students who are eight, nine years old. I hand them a song in Italian, teach them the basics and how to pronounce it and like where to find an Italian dictionary. They come back the next week, know the entire song from memory, know the like have the translation there and pronounce it all correctly. Like we don't, we don't give enough credit to kids, but, (laughs) but also when you do that, your brain is more adept at picking things up later in your life as well, because you have those synapses already firing. Absolutely. And uh, you know, like it's something that I'm very proud of. I also, um, it's not lost on me that speaking another language, certainly speaking Spanish in this country is like an act of resistance given the current administration. Yeah. Um, but like that aside, um, I just, I think it's funny again, just the attitude that Americans have toward people, you know, speaking 
you know, and it's a, it's anti-intellectualism among other things, but it's really, absolutely yeah, but it's really funny to me to hear these attitudes that people just display so openly, so brazenly against people who speak another language when it's like, y'all are monolingual. You should probably learn something yeah. you know, like, <laughs> right? right. Like you'll benefit like all these jobs. That absolutely. You benefit, you'd be able to get one if you spoke another language. Right. You well, and you go anywhere else in the world and every school at least forces their students to learn, become fluent in two languages at least. Absolutely. And it's something that like, if Lord knows if I had a kid, but I wouldn't have one because, you know, climate change. Um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah. Uh, if I had one, I would certainly, you know, do that. But yeah, like language learning is going, it's just, it's essential. And I want mm -hmm. to bring that to my future work, which I would love to do again in the communication space. And yeah. And for people like me who are more visual learners than anything else, and you want to learn another language, but you're worried about vocabulary, learn sign language. It's very easy to pick up. Mm -hmm. it's, it does have a different grammar from English, but it's not complicated. And it, it honestly, I took it for a year in college and was conversational by the end of that year. Oh, amazing. And then I didn't have anyone to practice with and it went away again. But like, I can watch someone sign even now and honestly get a good portion of what they're saying like understand the context enough that I could respond if I wanted to mm -hmm. oh, um, cool. which yeah. always makes me feel bad when I see people like signing on the subway I'm like I'm not gonna look I promise because that's like just as bad as listening in on things like but that's another good one to learn because they've done studies that have shown that a child's brain is able to understand language at six months Mm -hmm. you're not able to form your own like you aren't able to speak a language until a year year and a half and then you're not usually able to speak full sentences until about two two and a half mm -hmm. but you can understand basic communication at six months old and oh, if absolutely. you start teaching a baby sign language from the moment they're born they stop crying at six months wow because they can communicate. Oh, my stomach hurts. I can tell you my stomach hurts. Oh, I'm hungry. I can tell you I'm hungry. That like, is amazing. It's, that is amazing. We, we have infantilized, pardon the, the pun, because I was just talking about yeah. babies, but we've infantilized our population to the point where we don't think people can learn these things and we don't think they're able to have that kind of thought process and I do think it's come down from our administration for generations oh, for sure. of just like pretend or talking down to the people to the point where we do have this kind of anti-intellectualism within our culture because we don't think we can be intellectual. It's true. Um, I certainly, I have found myself occasionally, I done to not do it anymore. I'm very unapologetic about it. But like in the past, I would find myself just dumbing myself down because mm. I mean, one of the things that I learned growing up and this certainly impacted my life growing up, you know, growing up as a as a gay man um, here in New York City was I learned that people it's funny because I'm not an unattractive person. I've, you know, <laughs> I've but I grew up constantly thinking that I was ugly. Yeah. You know? And certainly I was, you know, mistreated and bullied and everything else. So I grew up thinking that I was very ugly and there's still that little voice in my head sometimes. Mm. And it's just a lifelong thing that we have to work through and remind ourselves, you know, that is not real. That is not the actual reality of things. It's not the yeah. 
And, um, but one of the things I remember, I'll never forget it. And I, it's one of those things that like, you remember it, you remember that like it was, you don't remember who said it, but you remember how it made you feel, is that kind of thing. And like, there was a student, forget who the fuck this person was, but they said, oh, Alan, you know, you're smart. And like smart people, what was it? Like smart people don't get laid or like don't get boyfriends or whatever. And they went on this rant. <laughs> so stupid. It was so stupid. But like that is in my head sometimes. Right? Yeah. Where it's like nobody actually, you know, nobody actually likes me or actually thinks of me as like an attractive or sexual being or whatever. And oh, I shouldn't open my mouth now because like yeah. then people think that I'm like trying to one up them or something like that. And Oh, I've, completely. I, uh, I mean, I, I grew up homeschooled. Life, yeah. yeah, I, I grew up homeschooled. Playing my intelligence and questioning mm -hmm. my choices. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, growing up homeschooled, you get, you have a lot more time to kind of um, research and you, you're exposed to a lot more subjects all at once. So it's not, you're not stuck to a specific curriculum. And so for years growing up, I was told, oh, you're just a know-it-all. Oh, you just blah, blah, blah. Like, Mm -hmm. can't you just yeah. shut up like no one cares all it's the like, time yep. mm -hmm. it, there's there's this thought process especially in america of if you happen to know a little bit about a lot of things for some reason you're a know-it-all and how dare you be so smart and people mock you for it yeah and it's like why why can't we be intelligent people like exactly. everyone has the ability and honestly the uh, obligation to be intelligent mm -hmm. so don't make fun of people when one of my favorite things is just sitting down and researching stuff oh yeah like my youtube history is so varied like people like most people will be like oh i just watch like beauty gurus or oh i just watch this i'm like do, i watch everything from like sims play videos to like wood turning videos to doll painting to like yeah. ted talks to yeah. all this kind of stuff and it's because i just i love learning and i don't care what i'm learning about i just want to know more yeah and it makes me so sad that there's such a huge preponderance of people within this nation specifically that think it's stupid and awful and makes you a terrible person if you're that curious Mm -hmm. And it's like, no wonder our nation is where it is right now because we've killed our curiosity. We've Absolutely. killed our ability to, or killed our desire to learn. I think you're 100% right. And that's something that I've certainly, you know, I've fought with that my entire life. You know, this idea that like, you can be smart, but not too smart. You have to mm. not take up too much space. Like that was like the yeah. Lesson. Yeah. And that's certainly the lesson that Ooh. you hear as, you know, as the son of an immigrant, you mm. know, like immigrants do that to their children. They're like, you can succeed and you need to be whoever you can be, but don't make waves. And it's like, then how yeah. the fuck am I going to do anything? Right. Yeah. So I grew up constantly questioning my choices, questioning my ability to do anything, my ability to lead, my ability to just, you know, be, uh, to, to like I never felt like I'm you know like a capable human being growing yeah up. I mean I fully second guess myself every time I leave my apartment of like is this is it okay that I'm going to the grocery store like am I allowed to go to the grocery store right now I don't have any food but is it like okay like there's always those thoughts running through my head because for so long it was like 
it was it was what you're saying that idea of don't don't do something that might be offensive to someone or don't do something that might like what's how am I trying to say it like make sure that you're not causing a ruckus like Mm -hmm. like how dare you think that you have the ability to make decisions for yourself kind of a person like isn't that what we should be doing as human adults (laughs) like yeah it's just it's been one of the biggest struggles of my life and it's affected I mean you know it's affected just my just my general existence like just being it's affected my you know just going out when I'm date when I'm dating people when I'm fucking Mm. you know like just doing anything I could be or working it's constantly second guessing myself there's always that it's a nightmare of imposter syndrome and self-doubt yeah yeah and like it was something that I felt come down from fellow students teachers would sometimes say things like that to me um I did not you know necessarily grow up in an environment full of people who were constantly you know advocating for me or my learning or anything like that Mm -hmm. um and uh also you know again my own mother because of just some of some of her own issues and again this isn't to say that she didn't want me to learn she loved that i was learning like i said yeah. she was such a reader and a thinker and everything else but there was always that caveat like don't make waves just be you know just be a good person and like a good person mm. quote unquote is a very specific thing that fits yeah. tiny box here in american society it's a it's a weird like instead of teaching people to be curious and ask questions we teach people to moralize exactly and it's such a strange juxtaposition of like that's why the whole i mean pandemic situation became political or became almost religious and why like people view science as something that you can either believe in or not and it's like that's it's because we're taught to moralize our lives rather than ask questions and learn things and and be curious about things. Absolutely. I mean, just yesterday, the White House press secretary said that we shouldn't allow science to, you know, to affect, to affect uh, the reopening of schools. And I'm like, I'm like, isn't that the point of school is to actually like, give credence to the science right i'm just like Uh, i remember thinking and parting my language i was like is this bitch fucking crazy i was just like you gotta be fucking joking i I mean honestly it's it's my only my only way to rationalize what is going on with our government Mm -hmm. is and it's I know it's cliche at this point and I know people are like oh coming from a Jewish person it's it's literally watching the Third Reich happen all over again. I mean, like, I, I don't think that you're wrong. Um, like, I it's following the exact same pattern. Sure, they're like, maybe not the same things. The same... Historians and former <sighs> Secretary of States agree with you. Okay? Yeah, it's and just, it's watching the press secretaries say, well, we shouldn't believe science. They were literally saying those things in... Uh, 19 late late 30s Germany early 40s Germany when Hitler was chancellor before he even became dictator that's how he became dictator was saying don't listen to science don't listen to reason don't ask questions don't learn things because if you start learning things you're not going to believe what I'm saying at face value absolutely um and we're just we are certainly paying the price 
for it right now. Absolutely. Um, it's just, it's been really kind of sickeningly fascinating to see people argue, we should have discussions with educators about reopening schools because we need our children to learn. And then it's like, but you're having these discussions over Zoom because it's unsafe to exactly. me. <laughs> and, and things like the legislators who are putting plexiglass in between their own desks so that because they have to meet and they want to make sure that they're safe and then voting against having any of those same precautions in schools. It's like, so what you're saying is you're special, but you don't care if the kids die because fuck that generation. Precisely. It's a, it's a fucking mess all around. And there are so many things that need to be reconsidered, just considered in general. Uh, <laughs> before, before you even think about sending kids to school, frankly, I don't think you should send them yeah. to school. You're asking no, them. not at all. Not yet. And I've been covering this enough um, where I'm just like, it's, it's like a suicide mission. I'll take your third right, com your third right comment, and I'll say that like right now, this nation is essentially in the grips of a suicide cult. Like, oh, all, yeah, fully, fully. Yeah. Like yeah. that was one of the things, and you can look back on my Facebook timeline for back all the way in 2015, 2016, where I said I kind of honestly think that Trump is purposefully tanking the country. Well, if you think about it, if you look at <laughs> the, you know, his poll numbers certainly are tanking. Um, people are waking up to the lack of a federal response. People are waking yeah. up yeah, to not, in, not just the coronavirus, but also to mm. you know the protests going on around the country against uh, racial injustice and police yeah. brutality. Um, there have, you know, there has, there's no cohesive response from the federal government to say nothing of the fact that um, we're in the middle of a pandemic and enhanced unemployment benefits are due to expire in a country that already is notorious for not having much of a safety net at all. Yep. And people have asked me before they've come to me, you know, they say, oh, Alan, you know, can you explain this to me? Like what's going on? You've been covering this, you're covering that. Like what are your thoughts or insights on just what is happening? Why are, why are people like going out there and protesting now? And, you know, like, because, Eric Garner died and people didn't do shit or this happened and people didn't do shit. And people were doing plenty of shit. They were. They know? were. It just it wasn't was, as televised. It wasn't as televised. And I told them, listen, this is blowing up because it's like, we have to remember again that Trump is a symptom. He's not, you know, yeah. he's, not, he's not the disease. And, yeah. you know, he or his people are certainly aware of this and they're, you know, exacerbating it. And again, we're paying the price for it. Yeah. Um, but I will say that, like, how can you be, you can't, I, I personally am not surprised when I see that people are protesting and that things have gotten violent in some cases, uh, again, exacerbated by the police response. Uh, I personally, Absolutely, have, yeah. I've witnessed myself, I've witnessed, you know, police attack protests, mm -hmm. among other things. Um, I have a friend who went viral for catching um, a, for catching a, a police officer shove uh, a teenage girl, you know, into the sidewalk where she cracked her head open, you know? So I saw that video, yeah. Yeah, and she's suing, you know, she's suing the, the police department in the police union right now. Um, but it's like, of course, things have blown up to the point that they are, because in the middle of a pandemic, there's not, there's not a safety net, and people are legitimately starving right yep. now. There are people who are starving in this, the so-called greatest country in the world. Like, I know people who have not gotten unemployment benefits at all. Which still. is crazy. And I don't understand what's going on because, I mean, I 
had to register for unemployment. And I literally, I got approved within a day and I had my card in less than a week. Mm. And it's like, so what are these unemployment offices doing? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I will There's say. There's no way that they know on that end yeah. what a person looks like. I, I, I honest, I don't understand. I, I will tell you that, like, I mean, look, no shame in collecting unemployment. That is my fucking tax money, and I will, co- you know, and I will collect. Yeah, it is necessary. Yeah, exactly. I'm- I want to make that point perfectly clear before I launch into my next point. But this next point is not only that, but like, <clears throat> despite that, I do feel guilty that I was able to, in some way, you know, that I was able to collect unemployment so quickly when some other people are still waiting because let me tell you what I did. So this shit all went down and like New York basically went to full blown lockdown. I think it was it March 13th, March 14th. Thereabouts. It was mid-March. Yeah. Mid-March. And I remember that, you know, I was working sparingly and I did lose clients and I did lose income and I had savings and stuff. And I was like, okay, I have to figure this shit out. And I was concerned because at the time, you know, we didn't know anything about like unemployment and I'm, I'm a freelancer. The self-employed traditionally don't qualify yep, for same. unemployment benefits, which is fucked up. So I'm going to reiterate, it is fucked up. Yep. Thankfully, Congress decided to correct that. They remedied that. So self-employed and freelancers, we could go ahead and get our unemployment benefits. And I went ahead and I applied, but I waited two months because I still had some regular money coming in. That's and, I went, fair. and I went into my and I went into my savings to and again not much oh god I hate being so poor you know it sucked but yeah. I went into my savings and I paid rent you know like a couple of months ahead in advance mm-hmm. you know and I had the money I was like this is good take care of that because it's like the most important thing keep your yeah. your head and I just wanted to wait and see what would happen so you know unemployment benefits were extended to people like me and I was like okay cool well I'll wait because I knew that tons of people were slamming the system and I didn't think that I could realistically get into the system and apply and get my benefits you know Um, especially because the unemployment numbers were skyrocketing and currently they've sort of evened out but they're kind of going up and down because again people reopened their economies too early and now they're forced to shut down in other cases yeah so I know people who you know, went back to their jobs and like, yeah, I'm making money again, but they worked for like a week or two and now they don't have a jobs again. I know exactly. People, yeah, I've known people who've been laid off twice already in this one year. And yeah. it's crazy, but I ended up applying in May, actually. Yeah, that's like, when I applied as well. Yeah, I waited. I was like, you know what? I think I should be able to go into the system now. I'll wait. I was very strategic about it. Mm-hmm. I get in. <clears throat> it took me all of maybe 10 minutes to fill out yeah. everything. And then I was approved within like four days and I had my money within the next like two or three days after that. Yeah. And it was seamless. I was like, wow, what the fuck is this? And I was very happy. It was like, this is a lifeline. I'm very glad to have this right now. At the same time, I was like, why the fuck do I have this right now? Like so quickly. And there are people who applied first thing and they don't have it. It really pissed me off when I thought about it. And there's still people that don't have it. And I don't understand I don't understand what's going on. Yeah. I don't I don't understand their their triage as it were. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's like uh, these people need um they need help and they need economic justice, you know, right mm-hmm. now. And this is full blown it's a miscarriage of economic justice. Absolutely. It, yeah, it makes me so furious when I think about it. And when I think of people like, you know, 
like Mitch McConnell, you know, who just don't give a flying oh, fuck. Oh, God. I don't want to turn this into, you know. Yeah, no, no, no. I really, um, because it's exhausting and it's literally my life. I have yeah. to this all the time. Also, by the way, completely separate topic. If you hear bumps and stuff in the background, they're doing construction upstairs, refurbishing the apartment. Just, oh, okay. just in case you hear random like thumps and things, it's not me throwing stuff across the room out of anger at our country. <laughs> yeah. um, I will say for a positive note, since this has all been very huh, yeah. anxiety inducing, as a positive note, there have been a lot of great things that the Supreme Court has been doing in the last few weeks. Um, and I think Absolutely. one of, yeah, I mean, honestly, very positive things. Um, and I think one of the best parts of that, or one of the most encouraging parts to that, is um, that Justice Gorsuch, who um, is a conservative, and he was one of Trump's um, nominees, yeah. one yeah. of his picks, and honestly was someone that we, everyone had their eyes on to be like, okay, what is he about? What is going on? He's been... I, I have to hand it to him. He's a very, seems to be a very level-headed person, which I was not expecting from a Trump <laughs> appointee. He's a very level-headed person. He's very concerned with equality. He's very concerned with um, the Constitution, as the justices are supposed to be and haven't necessarily proven to be in the past. Yeah. Um, like, he just ruled the, the big one for me that, I don't understand why no one's talking about. Um, the big one is he just awarded half of the land of Oklahoma back to the native tribes. Crazy. I mean, not he, him specifically, but he was one of the, the five, I think it was a five to four vote and it came down I, to him and he was the I, one that voted. I think so. I need to look to at To make it happen. And sure, it doesn't actually change who lives where, it doesn't change the borders of the quote-unquote reservation. But what it does is it changes law enforcement in Oklahoma. Uh-huh. So, so now the, the, the tribes um, have a lot more say in their own law enforcement. And they have more say in the state's law enforcement. Yes. They also get a whole lot more, honestly, restitution from the U.S. government because of this ruling and it's so exciting and so cool to me and I really hope that other states start following suit mm. because there's so many specifically in Oklahoma the reason why this became an issue is because there were a lot of indigenous men specifically who were accused of rape who were accused of murder who were accused of a lot of these crimes and tried very quickly and put put in jail very quickly yeah. um huge gross miscarriages of justice that they basically sued the state over and said, we want to have more control over this state so that we can retry these cases and make sure that it's not just white people putting indigenous people into prison because they hate us. Yes. And it's such a big thing. And it's so exciting to me that our Supreme court, like everyone. Yes, I know it's, it's scary. RBG keeps going into the hospital like every other month. But it's, I mean, sorry, she's elderly. She's going to be in the hospital every other month. Because if I may, if I may. Yeah. It is. I'm sorry, I got something in my throat. Um, it is fucked up that we are placing so much of, you know, the, the uh, you know, the survival of our fucking society Absolutely. on the back of an 
87-year-old woman. Well, also, on top of that, an 87-year-old woman who, honestly, sure, she's on the more liberal side of things, but she's also not fully a liberal. Like, we expect that she's going to be this huge progressive voice, and she hasn't always voted progressive. In fact, it's a pretty 50-50, because she's one of those few people that's really concerned with the letter of the law of the Constitution. Yes. And then we forget the other justices on the supreme court as well there are other women on the supreme court as well like Sonia Sotomayor and yeah Lena Kagan yeah like why are we so obsessed with RBG yes she's great and she did make some huge help make some huge decisions for for women's rights and gay rights great absolutely but also the entirety I, I, I mean as Gorsuch is proving we don't necessarily have to worry about trump appointing people because if they're being appointed they've gotten to a they've gotten to a certain level of being a judge in this country where they can be appointed and those people are gonna be fairly concerned with the constitution Mm -hmm. and that's their job they aren't they're supposed to be unbiased considering the letter and um absolutely i do think feeling of the law Yes, I do think it is certainly possible to um, to stack the courts. Don't get me wrong. Absolutely. Certainly. Um, but I do think that in lots of ways, in general, in lots of ways, I think that there have been, in addition to, like, I would say the activists, not that obviously I have so much respect for so many wonderful activists out there mm. doing wonderful things, but the activists are the ones to get all the press time. And a lot of that is because, you know, it's like, it makes... Clicks, clicks make money if you position yeah. it as, you know, like, oh, activists are taking down the Republicans. Of course, people are going to be angry. People are going to be fighting. You're going to have tons of clicks. People, things are shared on Facebook. Yeah. People are fighting all the time. And that's, you know, I've worked for the media machine. I know what it, I know what happens. <laughs> I know what sells and it yeah. pisses me off. And I, you know, I distanced myself in the, from certain, you know, places that I've written for or whatnot because of shit like that. Yeah. Um, but I will say that, like, what doesn't get as much coverage is just the number of people, you know, the number of people out there who have been able to place effective checks on the Trump administration from running completely willy-nilly. And this yeah. isn't to say that the Trump administration isn't doing some messed up things that will need to be corrected for no, years. No, absolutely. I mean, and Environmental rollbacks are a big yeah. one, for example. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's why we have three branches of government. And truly, honestly, the president has the least amount of power of all three branches. True. I do think that the Trump administration has provided us with, um, well, an excellent example of what happens when you have too much executive power. Yes. Uh, certainly. And, he- and what happens when you have a Senate that agrees with you. Exactly. You know, it's, that's, uh, that's very upsetting. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, certainly Obama himself had, you know, there were some criticisms toward Obama regarding that. Same thing with yeah. Bush. Uh, the issue of executive power has dogged previous administrations for a very long time. Oh, yeah. Um, I do admire that the Trump administration has brought out a new level of civic engagement. It's something that I would like to see sustained. Um, yes. Maybe maybe a little bit more professionally and a little bit more... A little bit more professionally. <laughs> but I, but I, I honestly, I, I do... To agree with you, I do think it's – I'm trying to figure out how to word this so people don't think that I like Trump. Um, <laughs> Lies, you do. No, I'm kidding. 
I, I don't in any way, shape, or form. But I do like that he is engaged enough with the people that he had to be told that he wasn't allowed to block people. Like, mm-hmm. that tells you that he's actually, like, seeing things and reading things and, like, or at least his people are to the point where, you know, like, there is a lot of engagement happening and it's not good engagement and it's highly immature and highly unprofessional. Mm-hmm. But that kind of engagement is exciting and it it shows that it's possible. It shows that a lot more people care than people you know than people let on i also Mm -hmm. i really dislike when people say things like you know oh you know uh especially when they blame it on they blame it on the young folk all the time Mm -hmm. you know it's very very frustrating to me and i know it makes me sound like some old fogey but it's been really odd for me to really well you know we're all getting older and it's crazy because i'm going all right i'm going to be 30 next year and you're gonna be 30 this year what are you talking about i feel ancient (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, like, I'm going to be 30, and it's crazy to me to think, oh, my God, wait, high school was 12 years ago. Oh, my God. I know. And then I'm like, oh, my God, I'm not in that voting block anymore. Oh, my God, I'm in a different voting block. Oh, my God. And We're thinking that there are college students for whom 9-11 is history. Yeah, I was talking about that with a friend just earlier. Yeah. Blows my mind. I know. I blows my mind that yeah. there are people existing who are fully fledged adults who are voting, yeah. who don't know the amazingness of being able to walk all the way to a plane and not go through security. <laughs> I, so I was. I know. I was. I remember those days. <laughs> those were. I mean, days. you watch movies like, like oh oh, Love Actually. Love Actually. Love Actually was like right after that. So. Yeah, no. Oh. Uh, but like. There's so like um sleepless in Seattle or things like that where they like run and catch the person at the gate and it's like I forgot that there wasn't security at one point in history. Oh, and miraculously, there weren't (sighs) a bajillion people dying. You know, it's weird. It's almost like that's not a thing. Right. It's almost like the TSA is performative. It's and and racist. They. (laughs) I mean, I. You know, again, I've I've had pretty positive experiences with the TSA generally because again, I the benefits of being white or looking white passing enough. Yeah, like nothing has ever happened. Always been super polite to me, et cetera, et cetera. Have they been a bit harried or whatever? Sure, but that doesn't mean that I haven't noticed the way they treat other people. Yes, and it's disgusting. It's. Disgusting. I mean, we could talk about the time that I was coming from London to New York. And I had been in London performing and I have an act where I use fake handcuffs and a flogger in it. Um, thank you, Rihanna, for your song S&M. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're like fuzzy handcuffs. Like they're, it's cute. They don't look like real handcuffs. Yeah. But they were in my carry-on because I forgot about them. Yeah. And my bag, of course, gets flagged. So they take me over and literally, all I had to say was, oh, I'm a drag queen. I use it in my number. And they were like, okay, cool. You can hold on to them. Have a good day. I know for a fact that if I was not white and I had handcuffs in my bag, I would have been pulled into an extra room. I would have been held for questioning. Like, it would have been a whole big deal. Oh, 100%. And 100%. It's, it's crazy. The TSA is the weirdest fucking thing to have ever come out of the it's, 21st century. <laughs> and I remember, so like, um, well, going back to like what we mentioned before about 
there are just a whole generation of people who are alive right now who think of 9-11 as just world history and who don't remember a time <sighs> where you could fly like that and where the TSA wasn't a thing. I, so I was, this is going to sound very bougie, but I was, <laughs> I was in the Hamptons last year. And um, yeah, I know, I know. Did you have dinner with Ina Garten? <laughs> uh, I did not. I did have dinner with plenty of other rich people who are friends, you know, who are friends of mine, the benefits of date a rich guy every now and then you'll have fun. <laughs> um, so, you know, and it was nice and we're still friends, but very good friends, actually. Um, I actually got, uh, I uh, got uh, off a Zoom call with a mutual friend of ours earlier this afternoon. So, who you, know, who you met in London last time. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we had a Very flat. sweet people. Yeah, really lovely people, really lovely people. And so we were in the Hamptons last year, and um, they were going to some bougie rich person event. I don't know what, you know, and a couple of us were like, who did not have tickets to this thing? It was only like a couple of hours. They like went out there for something. Um, it was what my, it was what my friend would, my friend uh, would call impossibly white it was an impossible <laughs> impossibly white rich people that's <laughs> that's the joke and um i went to this bar you know just to chill out with another friend who did not you know mm. again another wealthy wealthy ish kind of guy who just uh, you know did not go to that and we're sitting in this bar and it was super fun and the bartender was great older guy who i think owned the place and um he's like talking with like this young sort of bar back slash bus boy kid and you know he was really he was really sweet and he asked and the kid asked us oh you know where are you from we're like oh you know we came in from new york city and we're just you know here for the weekend and just enjoying ourselves and he's and he says to me oh wow i need to go he's like i need to go to new york and stuff i haven't been there in a while i'm like oh yeah you should and then the bartender goes i haven't been to new york since probably just uh just before, just before, just after 9-11. And I was like, wow. And then, you know, we were talking about it because anytime we're in New York, anytime somebody mentions it, <laughs> we're always going to end up talking about it, even for just a moment. Very briefly. Literally. <laughs> I don't think there's any conversation that I've had in New York bar, maybe like four or five in my two years ish of being here that hasn't ended or had some snippet of talking about 9-11 in it. Like it's yeah. so much part of the zeitgeist here. It's, yeah crazy we you know like we were here we lived through it i was it was certainly a very traumatizing day for oh yeah here i've never i personally have never been to uh you know the 9-11 memorial because to me it's like it's a bit it's a graveyard to me i don't i would get a little too angry being yeah. there because yeah. of my personal beliefs about what happened <laughs> yeah oh, that bothers me you know and um but i view it as a graveyard and yeah you know, it's a very, I went, I also went to college, you know, there in the shadow of what would eventually become the Freedom Tower. Things were still yeah. really messed up there. And, um, but again, being just born and raised here, yeah. I think I have a different view of it than somebody who may not, you know, may not be from here. I mean, I was here in 2003 when the big blackout happened, but mm -hmm. one of the, one of the things we did before it happened was they used to have a sky bridge that went oh. over the over the sites because they were still cleaning it out in 2003. Yeah. It took a long time. And it took a very long time. And it was still smoking in 2003. Like there yeah. was, it was crazy. Yeah. And I still, I, as I a little 12-year-old, I, I saw it. It was crazy. Yeah. I still remember the smell. The smell of it was disgusting. Mm. And you could smell it 
it felt like you could smell it everywhere in the city. And I remember there was this plume, this column of smoke that was basically etched into the sky yep. for days and it didn't leave. And it carried that smell and those toxins and whatever the hell was in that, in that cloud yep. everywhere all over the city. And who knows what like we breathed in and ingested. Right? It's like, I think about it sometimes and it's like, oh my God, that's fucking hard. I also remember that they had to refilm like half of the very first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie because <laughs> yeah. they had to cut the Twin Towers out of it. It was, I, it, I was remember, a, yeah. it was a big part of culture for a while. It was crazy. I remember actually on my, when I was in, when we met in London, right? So like when I was flying to London mm-hmm. back in December, I was watching home alone 2 and there's a scene just it was it was like oh it's the christmas season and home alone 2 is on the plane i'm gonna watch it yep. i had a blast and i'm gonna pretend that like donald trump's cameo you know <laughs> but there's a scene where kevin is like so excited to be in new york and he just like scrolls up to the twin towers and then i got all sad i was like yeah oh. i was like it's yeah. always weird watching watching any movie that was made about new york before 2001 mm-hmm. like i think there's even like a a scene in like you've got mail where it just like shows the skyline and you're like oh no <laughs> yeah, I, know. I get very <laughs> this weird sense of impending doom every time you see it it saddens me but back to the uh, this uh bougie you know yes yes, yes. mountains so like positive happy things <laughs> you know the bartender says oh yeah i haven't been to you know to new york since you know since i think before after 9 11 and then we're talking about 9 11 and then the kid goes, wow, so what was 9-11 like? And then I realized, wait a sec. And I said, how old are you? And he's like, oh, I'm 16. And I was like, bitch, what? Like, oh, my God. And I was like, oh, God, he's 16. He's old enough to be a busboy in this bar. Oh, my God. It was like the strangest thing to me. That's weird that 16 is old enough to be a busboy. Yeah. In, in Washington, where I grew up, it's you can be 18 and work in a bar. Mm-hmm. You can't be a bartender until you're 21. Yeah, like I think the rule is like you can be a busboy, but you can't. You know, I don't think you can be. That's crazy. A bar back. That's you know? crazy. Busboy and bar back. Are two yeah, things. very different things. Yeah. yeah. So like, but just has, oh god, you can't, have, you can't have the 16 year old touching a bottle of alcohol in any way. Yeah. 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 I mean, I work it's, as a busboy in a restaurant. It's just weird thinking about the 90s as being over 20 years ago. Oh God. I was like, thinking about that too. It's- like the more, every single time someone was like, this movie is celebrating its 18th anniversary. I'm like, no, it's not. I, no. I refuse to accept that. Sometimes I still think that the year 2000 was 10 years ago. Like, <laughs> Except, Oh, I still think the year 2000 was like less than 10 years ago sometimes. Yeah. Like it's still 2007 in my mind. Like yeah. let's yeah. just, let's it's just stay crazy. there for a while. But then I look back on it and it's like, oh wow, Alan, 2007, you were so awkward and you were like. Oh yeah. We won't before. talk about that. I was like, yeah, I don't want to think about that. Like there- think about it. The Little Mermaid came out 31 years ago. Okay, you're going to stop that right now. She, if she was a real person, she would be in her late 40s. <laughs> Ariel's almost 50! Oh my god. <laughs> well, I started thinking the other day, because I do love, I love classic film, and Olivia de Havilland is oh. and I worship her and the ground she walks on. She's so real. good. Yes, and she celebrated her 104th birthday. She's and, still alive? Yes. And she's she's 104. 
last she's year. Carly's still fucking gorgeous too. She's, she's one of still, she's super gorgeous. And last oh, year, last year there was a photo. <laughs> last year there was a photo of her riding her bike through Paris. So like she's got it going on. All right. And yeah, she, she was born July first, nineteen sixteen. Yeah, so in Tokyo, was, Japan. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So she was. So she's now one hundred and four. And Gone with the Wind came out in nineteen thirty nine. Oh yeah, I forgot she was in that one. When she was twenty three, and I was. It's like it's crazy to me. It's like imagine you know the average lifespan of the average American adult. It's like okay, you live to see the thirtieth anniversary of the film. Cool, go to events. The fortieth, <laughs> cool, go to events. The 50th, it's like, okay, I was 23, I'm in my 70s now, you know, cool, go to events. By the 60th, you're like, wow, I'm in my 80s, I guess I'll go sometime soon. And <laughs> like, no, she's still doing her thing. And it makes me a little sad when I think about that. She is the only one, she's like, I think, the last living cast member of the film, if, if memory serves. And she's also, yeah, I think so. I, think, I think so. Let me look. I think, I think the kid who played... Bo in Gone with the Wind died a few years ago in like his 70s or 80s. I will like say, and this is a different conversation for a different time because of the whole like having Gone with the Wind removed from certain streaming services and services and such. And that was only temporary. It wasn't. It's this, still like, one of my favorite movies. And I think it, it deserves recognition yeah. simply for the fact absolutely. Oh, that what's that? What's her face? I need to take a call. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go for it. Hello. Hi, yes, this is he. I, uh, let's see, I do not have it at the moment. Um, and I also, I would be interested in hearing more, but I actually am in the middle of some work, so I don't have time to talk about it at this moment in time. Could I get another, could I get another call at another time? Uh, let's see. Could we try? Uh, could we try on Monday? I have free time anytime Monday afternoon. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Okay. Bye. All right. Sorry about that. No, you're fine. Yeah. I I just think that movie requires some recognition for the fact that uh, it was Hattie McDaniel won best supporting actress and she was the first person of color to ever win an oscar yeah and it was for that movie and so and i honestly you watch the movie it does not paint the south in a good light in any way shape or form it really so, does <laughs> so like, like i don't understand why people are like it's problematic it's not i will i will say this so like i totally understand like yes there are you know these there are some uh uh, you know, there are racial stereotypes in the film. Yes, You know, absolutely. there are. That is a thing. Um, however, I mean, even reading the book, and I've read the book a few times, Scarlett O'Hara herself, like, it's told through her She's point an of awful view. person. Yeah, <laughs> but it's told through her point of view. Of course she's idolizing the South. Of course. Yeah. And she's a whiny brat. Like, there's, there's no way you can watch that and be like, oh, I want to be Scarlett O'Hara. And yeah. if you are watching or reading it and thinking that then you're the one with the problem yeah like um and i looked it up and you're right uh olivia de havilland is the only living person left who was in that movie uh even the the little girl who played bonnie um she was born in 1934 and died in 2010 she was 76 oh, i can't wow. see why so, yeah. but 
literally Olivia de Havilland is the only one left. Yeah, and she's also the she's the only one of the main of the of the four leads who didn't die young. All the other ones died fairly young. Mm. Clark Gable How- died, I think, at sixty from like a heart attack. Vivian Lee had tuberculosis and died in her 50s. Yeah, Clark Gable was 59. Yep. Vivian Lee was 53. And Leslie Howard was shot down in World War II. Oh, God, really? Yeah, he didn't. He only lived a few years after the film. He yeah, shot. he was only 50. He died in 43. Yeah, he was shot down by the Nazis, I believe. It's so weird. Uh, go, I mean, this total sidetrack. But looking back at movies that were made in that era and being like, oh, that actor was born in the 1800s. Yeah. What? <laughs> it's crazy, I know. It's crazy. And just... it, really, it really goes to show you how just like, well, time also, time just flies by generally, but mm. we're a lot more connected and a, not, and a lot closer to certain events than oh, we, yeah. we think we are. I remember that like, so like a lot of people, I had a huge, funny that we were talking, we were joking about the Titanic thing earlier, but <laughs> like, I, like a lot of people, I've had a very strong fascination with the Titanic. And, you know, I know that there are lots of people who uh, don't like, realize that it's a true story. I know that like as time goes on, it's difficult to look at real events. That makes me sad. It does make me sad, yeah. But like a lot of people like as distance grows, a lot of people don't realize that these things are history. Wait, did did something change on your end because I can suddenly start to hear myself talking? Oh, um no, I hear you perfectly fine. Oh that's weird. Okay, now it stopped. That was really weird. I don't know what was going on. Very weird. That's uh-huh. weird to me that people think the Titanic didn't happen. Yeah, well, here's That's, the like, thing. one of the things that I obsess about. <laughs> yeah, well, here's the thing about it. Like, when... So I'm, you know, a big reader, and I'm a history nut. And I was, you know, reading through... Um, I own a book of, like, the Titanic, like, inquest document mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So I, I read that at the beginning of the pandemic. I know totally, like, what happy stuff to read about. It's like, we're already on a sinking ship. Let oh, no, read I've read... Sinking ship. <laughs> right? I've literally read the um, the transcripts from the court the court proceedings after the Titanic sank. It's uh, very interesting. It's book, fascinating stuff. And so as a history nut, I've read a lot about the Titanic and while reading through this and seeing, and obviously like in reading like the afterwards and prefaces and all this other stuff in the book and all these like just supplementary information again, and seeing just how the sinking just changed, you know, uh, maritime law and all these other things. At the time, it was basically like the 9-11 of its day. The impact yeah. that was felt worldwide, impacting again, maritime law, the cruise ship industry, uh, uh, the way that uh, the sinking informed the way that ships were constructed in wartime because World War I started just a mm-hmm. couple of years later. Um, you know, the fact that, um, you know, just it entered the public consciousness again, like uh, in movies and later on in television and everything else. Um, people, if you actually go and like look for articles of the event at the time, spreads in, pa- in newspapers. Yeah. Just like 9-11, which had, you know, 20, 30 pages of coverage a day. I, I collected time. newspaper articles about 9-11 when I was a kid. I still have probably, I'd say 50 to 100 newspapers 
yeah. stuffed at my parents' house. Just like I, I started clipping articles and then I was just like, I'm just going to keep the whole paper. Why not? So I just had like a stack of papers that were all articles about what was happening just oh, sitting God. at my parents' house. But yeah. Um, but like looking at that, it's like, wow. Okay. Like this was truly a, an earth shattering event. Mm-hmm. And it was huge. And we are still feeling it to this day. And it's absolutely, such, and it's a huge, it's such a huge mark. On well, it's, it's similar to the whole, I mean, as far as I know, other than like maybe a handful of people, there are no, no one, there's no one alive now except for like Olivia de Havilland <laughs> who was alive during the last, uh, the last pandemic. Cause the last pandemic was 1918. Pretty Most much, of those yeah. people have died and those who haven't were so young that they don't remember it. And it didn't exactly. really necessarily affect them because they were so, so young. Exactly. Um, like and that's few people who even remembered it died, you know, several years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And so dealing with this now, it's, um, you, you can tell that no one knows their history. They really don't. And, and I think they really don't. And I think that's kind of the, the moral of this episode is learn your history. Don't be afraid to be smart and ask questions. Yes. I mean, it's crazy to me because like, I'm going to just for the, just for fun, I'm going to just look back on certain things and we'll see how old some of these things are. For example, Mm -hmm. we are in the year 1920, no, sorry, 2020. (laughs) We are, I don't know my history. All right. We're in the year 2020. Well, we were talking earlier about how like, oh, it doesn't feel like this current time. But anyway, like, so we're in 2020. I have 1920 in the brain because A.A. A. Milne wrote the first Winnie the Pooh book in, 19, in the 1920s. I believe it was published mm-hmm. in 1926. I think so, yeah. So Winnie the Pooh is 90-something years old. Which yeah. Which is crazy to me. That's why I had 1920 on the brain. Um, so, like, that's one thing. Titanic, again, was 1912, and we are in 2020. That's 180 eight years yep. that is crazy right uh let's see but that's only there's only pos- probably i mean if you think about it it's like a generation and a half that separates us from it my grandma who has since passed a couple of years ago she was born in 1921 mm-hmm. um my grandmother was 24 yeah uh-huh. so like there are it, it may seem like a long time between events, but in terms of people and like connections to those events, we are still very close to things that happened in the mid 1800s to now that's within like grandparents, great grandparents to Mm -hmm. our generation. We could hear stories about the 1800s from our great grandparents. Like we have, we have tapes from my great grandma when she had first come over from the Ukraine talking about how she got here. And she came over in 1916, I think. Mm-hmm. So she was, she like fully remembers several, several, like a couple of decades of the 1800s, like, or she did before she died, but like, it's there's so we're so connected to these things that happened such a long time ago because generationally it didn't happen that long ago Mm -hmm. it really didn't um 
but like I mean if you look at it it's very easy for people to like think of things in terms of like pop culture and like movies and music mm. and stuff like that so like the jazz singer the first sound film was 1927 it's Crazy. still not a, that's still not a hundred years and look at where movies are now look at where technology yeah um certain things like uh let's see oh my god uh the lord of the rings and the hobbit were published in the fucking 50s yeah you know so it's like we're already going on like 60 70 years yeah and it only took 60 years to get technology to the point where we could make those movies (laughs) yeah and uh let's see another one Or actually less than that it was like 50 something years yeah the first yeah the peter jackson's first movie came out in 2001 so yeah it's like I think it was like 40 something years after it was published. Crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm pretty sure it was published in like the fifties. Um, and then there's also, Oh God, another one that came to mind. Oh, Alfred Hitchcock's psycho came out in 1960. So it is officially 60 years old. Yay. Which is crazy to me because it's like, wait a minute. I was born in 91. That movie was barely 30, 31 years old. It's like, how can that thing be? But we think of it as being so long ago because it's black and white. So it must've been forever ago. I recently ran across a, a, I think it was a Twitter post where they just posted a bunch of pictures of Martin Luther King Jr. that were in color. And when you see a color photograph of him, which were not uncommon in the 60s, color photography was fairly ubiquitous by then. You realize how recent it was, that, that the civil rights movement was not that long ago. Nope. but. But in the media, all we see are black and white pictures of it because they want us to think it was even longer ago. Oh, yeah. And and they want us to think, oh, we dealt with this eons ago. And we so did not. And we Uh didn't. But because the pictures are black and white, we think we did because it seems much longer ago than it was. I saw people on Reddit bringing up that point that the black and white photographs distort the reality of lots of things. They do. And that's also a big reason. I think black and white photos, especially of things like the Selma March and uh, lots of the Mm. violent civil rights movement, and even things like Vietnam, black and white photos, you look at them and they make you think, oh, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that violent. And it's like- Yeah, because we have a weird nostalgia about black and white things. Yeah, it's like Senator John Lewis is a congressman and he's still very much alive. And in the 1960s, he had his fucking skull bashed in, you know, while marching. Yeah. And was roughed up by cops. So imagine what somebody like him must feel right now looking at everything that's going on in the day. It's like, oh shit, I've never left that era. Well, it's why whenever I get the chance to like look through one of those listicles that's like, here are pictures from the 1800s colorized so you can see what they would look like in real life. And you look through those and they're pictures of like Civil War um, soldiers and things like that, that we've only ever seen in black and white or seen as like tintypes that suddenly you're seeing in color. I used to have this weird thing in my head where I was like, oh, people from back then looked different. Like their faces were just differently constructed and like, we don't look anything like them anymore. And then you colorize a picture of them and you realize they don't look any different than the people walking past my window today. Yeah, like, so a lot of those people, if you, there are lots of things you notice too in color. You notice, holy shit. Uh, we still have a lot of the same hairstyles. Still have the same hairstyles. Yeah. Like, things like still that. have the same kinds of clothes. Exactly. Like, I'm sorry, some of those coal miners that there were pictures of could be hipsters now. Like, they could. They literally could. Like, it, it gives you a greater connection to that history and helps you realize how 
close we are to those people and it it makes it harder to kind of write them off as like oh it was a while ago they don't really matter anymore Mm -hmm. i mean if people actually believe that this shit still mattered then perhaps we wouldn't be in this <laughs> learn right your history be that, curious that is the moral of this whole thing um yeah it's just it saddens me um but on the you know but on the bright side it, like like we said earlier so many people are very much awake and paying attention yeah. and that's the really and other people are starting to wake up and it's exciting to watch it is, it is. I've realized, um, going back, it's funny because we've touched on 9-11, I think, like two or three times already. But <laughs> because we were young, it's like, it was a thing that happened. And when we were older, we realized, wow, yeah. that was a piece of world history and we were there to see it, right? Yeah. But like, I think one of the, perhaps the first thing that's happened in my adult life where I've thought, oh my God, I'm living history as we speak, as a conscious thought as an adult, is probably the coronavirus pandemic. Absolutely. And, you know, because I thought about it and like, yes, people are going to be asking about, you know, Trump and everything that happened and the climate in the United States forever. But like the coronavirus pandemic is like the sort of thing that like people are going to be asking shit about that for I the mean, rest of their lives. Right before the shutdown, when I was in London, I went and visited the Museum of London and they have an entire room dedicated to the European plagues. Wow. And so you walk around and you learn about the bubonic plague. You learn about all of these other, you learn about all the way from bubonic plague to influenza, the 1918 influenza, which they still call the Spanish flu in, in London. And I'm like, can we just call it the like influenza epidemic? Cause it, yeah. let's not blame it on any one people group. I don't care who it is. Let's not blame it on someone. Yeah, I believe it it's a virus. It doesn't care who you are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tell the anti-maskers. That. All it wants is a host so it can live. Um, it's hungry. But, <laughs> but thinking about the fact that we still talk about plagues that occurred in the 15, 14, 1300s, this is something that is, we're going to be part of a museum someday. Mm. It sucks right now, but we also have to remember... Like, this is our time to start taking notes about what life is like. We need to be writing down our experiences. We need to be making sure that even if we don't think we're important, 100, 200, 300 years from now, someone might come across one of our journals, might come across text messages, might come across social media posts about what's going on right now. And it's going to inform and help them understand what it was like so that they can explain it to further generations in museums. Mm -hmm. So no matter how unimportant you think you are, be taking notes, be writing things down because that's what's going to be passed on and help later generations learn from us. Like we should be learning from people in 1918 and yeah. 1800s and the 1700s. There's a major plague basically every 150 to 200 years. Pretty so, much. We just happen to have the misfortune of living <laughs> being in one of them. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy because I used to read, you know, we all did, we read about the bubonic plague and it's like, oh my God, that's horrific. People just dying en masse. And it's like, they're all just dropping dead and nobody knows what to do. And it's like, wow, I hope that we would have it together by now. And then it's yep. like, nope. <laughs> well, and then we hear about like 
they're putting coronavirus bodies in mass graves. Well, that's what they've been doing in every plague since the first plague we know about. Because at a certain point, you get a little overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah, nothing has changed. But like, we just happened to be going through a major like world plague on top of the second coming of the Third Reich. So we got to figure out both things at the same time. Uh, there are still people in cages at the border <clears throat> that we haven't done anything about. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> let's <laughs> let's let's leave the podcast there um, because we're going on almost two hours now. Wow! So uh, don't lose this one. <laughs> oh, this one won't be lost, and it'll be up um, next week. Yay. Um, okay. And then we can absolutely do more in the future because it's so much fun talking to you. Um, where can people find you online if they would so choose? Uh, let's see. You can find me on Facebook at Alan Jude Ryland. You know, you'll see me. There's a photo of me looking very bougie. That's my profile picture. <laughs> Lying on a couch in that glorious Mayfair mansion. So, oh. <laughs> yes, that's, that's where you can find me. Or if you'd like, you can feel free to email me at alan, A-L-A-N-J dot Ryland, R-Y-L-A-N-D, uh, at gmail.com. Uh, and maybe, you know, offer me an editing job because I'm poor, motherfucker. <laughs> and, you know, like, help. <laughs> that's give, me, give him a reason to, to buy another AP style book. <laughs> yeah, please, please. And, you know, just like, I will say one more thing. Um, it's really disconcerting to read news articles and, you know, because I'm, I work in news, I'm constantly editing things. It's really mm -hmm. disconcerting to see the outlets that keep on posting jobs looking for editors don't hire people and I see constant proofreading mistakes and all sorts of yep. errors in their fucking coverage. And it makes me angry because I'm like, I'm right here. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's really frustrating. So if you do happen to listen to this and you don't think that I'm a total fucking bore, give me a job. <laughs> Thank you and so honestly, much for having me. Yeah, of course. And honestly, you can always uh, Google Alan as well. Um, if you do that, I'll, a lot of his articles come up. I have done cursory checks on Google for him in the past, especially the first time we recorded, just because I wanted to, to read some of his work. And it's very easy to find. So if you're looking for samples, do, do your due diligence. It's very easy and go read some of his work. It's amazing. Um, if you'd like to find us online, all of that information will be in the description box, both for myself personally and for the podcast. Um, and be on the lookout. I'm uh, going to be premiering a second podcast in the fall uh, with a good friend, Nancy No Good. And we're going to be... Um, well, that information will be coming later, but be on the lookout for a new podcast coming this fall that's going to be a little bit more specifically inclined. And thank you for listening to us, um, and we will see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to Yeah But with Vivian Gabor. Tune in next week, same place, same time. Yeah.